Why don't we just get right to it? And uh, like I say, we'll just start out with James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How much rain you get? Ah, uh, one. Well, let's see. Over the two days, I had uh, one point three nine. Uh, over the three days, I had uh, about another quarter of an inch on top of that. So I got between an inch and a half and an inch and three quarters. And most of it came down really slowly, really soaked in. So, uh, you know, the rancher and gardeners, me, is just all smiles as usual. How about you? Oh, just about four inches. Oh, wow. Total. <laughs> that's that's bordering on more than you really need for the garden but believe me our yeah. river streams and aquifers can sure use it yeah you got to put your mud boots on just to get out to the barn to get to the truck man it's, uh, it's pretty rough <laughs> and you uh, better hope you got four-wheel drive when you get in the truck fortunately i do <laughs> um i called with a question and a comment uh yeah. the plan was to uh plant some of those uh, uh fingerling potatoes mm-hmm uh, oh, the beds are all ready, and uh, I'd like to get my hands on those potatoes by the 1st of February so I can lay them out and get them sprouted, have them ready for the uh, full moon. But the people that sell those fingerlings, at least up north, they don't ship them till April, and that's out of the question. Oh, yeah, that's that's way, way late. Do you have a – does your nursery bring them in, or – you know, we, we're we like uh, most people. We don't have a good local source on those things. But I tell you what I would do, and that is I would either go to uh, Whole Foods or I like natural grocers even better. And uh, since they're organic, uh, they may have been cold treated, but people don't do that much anymore. Freezing the eyes, that's the way they used to keep them from sprouting in the bins. Uh, nowadays, they use the chemicals that we don't like. But uh, I would be willing to bet you that the only only local source you're going to find, about the only source I know of, would be to go to a good organic grocer's and just buy them out of the bin. They should be just fine. Okay, the next question is... Uh, uh, I'm giving them two weeks to to sprout a little bit. Is that going to be long enough for the ones out of the bin? Should be just fine. Should be just fine. Uh, where do you put them to sprout them? Do you, you know, put them in a warm bed, or or what do you do to encourage them to break those eyes? Well, you just put them in in flats, those uh, those regular flats that we use in the greenhouse, yeah. and lay them out in a bright room about – 65 70 degrees okay. bright not not direct sun yeah but you don't give them bottom heat or anything like that no this time of the year all the heat mats are full of <laughs> it's flat. not necessarily that you don't want to it's just that you don't have room to well not right now i uh everything all the the Chili tapines and all the, the hard-to-germinate chilies are going in right now, so I don't have much room for anything. But it, you're, you're talking bottom heat? Yeah. Uh, I, I was just them. curious. I've, I've never pre-sprouted them, but I don't I don't grow little finger, fingerling potatoes. I probably should. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm like you, that uh, when the moon's right in February is when mine go, grow in the ground. So I'm I'm interested in learning how you do it. I tell well, you, I, I think... that with the, the Lasotas. Uh, I like to go through the bag and get all the ones about the size of a hen's egg. Right. And lay those out and get a little bit of sprout going on before I, I drop them in the hole. Uh-huh. 
Well, you obviously you're successful with it, so uh, sounds like a good idea. And the bigger ones that you're going to chop into more pieces, uh, do you plant those hen egg sized ones intact, or do you split them in half? Yeah. Uh, I like to buy a big sack and then take all the little ones out and yeah. then uh, sell the rest of them to my gardening friend. Ah, oh. <laughs> yeah, you're calling them to get the ones that you like best and then covering your costs, selling them to your friends. That's that's a that's a pretty smart gardener, yes, sir. Well, Malcolm used to tell me that his dad would uh, would uh, cut the eyes out of the potato, eat the potato, and plant the eyes. He was <laughs> a lot more frugal than I was. Well, maybe of necessity. I know they had some challenges early on, but uh, uh, I tell you, one of these days you're going to have to do what my old buddy Alton Grimm did uh, for that bottom heat, and that was before the days that we had the good heating mats, but I think I've told you he had a basically a a place in one of the benches in his greenhouse that he had that concrete board side on and bottom on and he you can buy that heating cable in you know 20 30 40 foot lengths and he just wound that thing just made a big kind of a grid pattern kind of like the core and a radiator back and forth filled it with perlite had about oh probably two inches of perlite under the cable and two inches of perlite over it and then we just set our pots we set our trays this was a a bed that was probably four feet wide and we had maybe six feet of it and that was so efficient and uh you know we just uh you you know about about 24 square feet there man we just stacked the pots in there we put the trays of stuff in there and it was it was a lot easier than working with the little individual propagating mats and energy wise i'm sure it was a whole lot better sure worked too if you can get 70 degrees that sure will initiate uh, root uh, root buds and get stuff going yeah we we did that for most of our cuttings and things and then uh in those days a lot of the greenhouses were heated with hot water heat had a big old hot water boiler that circulated the heat back and forth through those big old three inch iron pipes and uh anything we wanted higher than that 70 degrees we just put flats down sitting on top of those heat pipes and got double duty out of it it was heating the greenhouse and we were giving our pots a whole lot of bottom heat sitting on the heating pipe so lots of different ways to go with it but uh, that bottom heat you know anybody that's a real gardener i tell you that that'd make a great christmas present for anybody is a couple of propagating mats because it sure does help you with rooting cuttings it sure does help you get those seedlings off to a good start well, that's the truth. I had a comment. I, I heard you guys talking about mycorrhiza yesterday. Yeah. And um, the I I get a product down at Bright Ideas. It's a soluble uh, plant success mycorrhiza with the oh the just it's got everything in it. Yeah. Trichodermas and uh, just just everything. Well, it's um, got the it's got the mycorrhizae in it, which uh, you've got endo and ectomycorrhizae. You've got your beneficial fungi like the trichoderma. You've got your beneficial bacteria like the bacillus, subtilis, and some of those. And there are some great companies. I like uh, uh, David Seinbrenner up in uh, Bernie does a great job with what they call wild root organics. And uh, we've got a company up in Oregon we visited with at the uh, Far West Nursery Show last year that's doing a doing a real good job uh, of in their packaging of it. I don't know that it's any better than some of the other, uh, you know, products like Troy has and uh, like David has, but, man, they sure do a good job of packaging it for the 
for the uh, retail consumer with explaining how to use it and all. So I tell you, I think that's been one of the greatest things that's happened in the past 10 or 15 years is the introduction of all these uh, microbial products to the market in a form, yeah. in a quantity, at a price that's uh, really good for the home gardener. Yeah, this this is a soluble product, uh, a teaspoon per gallon, and you can get it on the seed trays, and then you can get it on the the seedlings and then you can get it on the transplants it's real easy yeah to handle and that's the name of the game when you got a lot of gardening to do easy is is uh easy is you know top of the list in my book it's kind of pricey but uh, you you're really good gardeners can go in together and buy a pound and share it oh yeah and you'll certainly get your money back many times over as far as both production and uh and uh, speeding the process up and keeping things healthy. And I think it makes them a lot more disease-resistant, too, especially when you've got that uh, bacillus subtilis and things like that in there. Well, you can tell the difference between uh, gardeners, the, the guys that are using the, the, the products that are that you guys are recommending and the guys that aren't. You can, right away, you can tell the difference. <laughs> It's amazing how some people just don't seem to seem to get it, and uh, this organic uh, stuff really does work. So, James, you get out and have a good Sunday. It's always good to visit with you, and let me know what you find on the Fingerling Potatoes. Yes, sir. Thank you. My pleasure always. Thank you, sir. Kay's turn. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I was wondering if you could help me out. Uh, how can I get rid of termites in a shop? Okay. Um and this is just a solid slab floor shop. Uh, Doesn't have I'm any not what we sure. call. It may have a crease in there, but they've gotten along the edge and they've right. eaten up some tuberfores, and I'm having them replaced. But I want to know what I can spray there without having to get, uh, you know, pesticides. Sure, in there. and you can get around the outside of the shop, can't you? Sure. Mm-hmm. Get some yeah. of the beneficial nematodes. And simply, uh, you know, I I do this fairly often. Termites are termites are only a problem if they're eating something you like. If we didn't have termites, the world would be forty miles deep in you know undecomposed <laughs> vegetative trash. So termites are not a bad thing, except when they get into your shop or a home or something like that. And all you really need to do is take your watering can, put that little sponge and nematodes in there, and you know treat it just like you would if you were going to spray out somewhere. But then just go around. And uh, be sure the soil's good and wet first, but then you just walk around the perimeter of that shop and, uh, you know, pour your beneficial nematodes in there. Termites will be dead very, very quickly. The reason I ask about openings is this is a problem we have with homes on slabs. Most of the time, the termites aren't coming up around the edge of the slab, but uh, people who, home builders who don't do it right, so to speak, um, they leave what we call penetrations through the slab, which is where your sewer pipe goes out, where your water pipes come in and things like that. And that's the spot the termites usually get in and cause damage, and there's no way to get the nematodes to them. Now, if you're dealing with a company like ABC and some of these uh, good guys, when the home is built, they actually have a uh, mesh they can put down that will keep termites from ever getting in to begin with. But uh, that's why I ask about penetrations. If you said, yeah, we've got a bathroom out there, we've got some holes through the slab where the pipes go in and out, then you would be looking at a much more serious problem. Or you've just got a solid slab that it's sitting on, you get out there with your beneficial nematodes, and for less than 20 bucks, you'll do what a what an exterminator costs, charge you several hundred to do, and you'll be doing it with a whole lot safer material. Well, it's a very old shop, but it does have a bathroom out there. 
Um, but where they are, it, it's around the edge of the Yeah, building. you just go around the edges with your uh, pouring your beneficial nematodes on, and that should totally co- control the problem very, very quickly. It, uh, can you do it this time of the year? Do you Absolutely. Have to wait it's warmer? I oh, did okay. it about two weeks ago. Oh, okay. So I don't need any orange oil or anything like no, that? No, ma'am. All you need is uh, probably, how big is your shop? Oh, that's, um, well, one, it's divided in half, and one side of a truck could fit in a small truck. Okay, so it's and maybe. And the other side is my potting shed. It's it's downtown, but it's behind my office. So but, it's 15 by 20, 20 by 20, something like that? Yeah, I guess so. That small one million package of nematodes is going to be plenty to cover you. Great. Okay. And the soil's good and wet from all the rain, so I would do it. I do <laughs> it. Had three and a half inches. Yeah, I do it as soon as you can. Okay. Uh, one other question: When um, when can I prune? I think it's called a Texas sage or a sinisa. It's got the gray leaves and yeah. the little purple. Yeah, yeah. Leucophyllum's its botanical name. Um, put it off as late as you can in spring before it starts growing. Typically, I'm going to tell you the end of February. And here's the reason why. If you ask me about a Yopon holly, a pittosporum, I'd tell you, you can do it now if you want to. It's just going to look ragged all winter. But that that Texas sage, uh, purple sage, whatever you want to call it, um, it is a plant that likes drier soils. And the way a plant gets rid of the moisture in the soil, it takes it up through the roots and releases it out through the leaves. If you go in and prune a bunch right now and take away a lot of the leaves, then you're making it more difficult for the plant to deal with these heavy rains that we get periodically and which are actually expected to continue through the winter months. So a lot of plants, I'd tell you, if you have to do it, you can do it right now. But the Texas sage, I would wait until just before the plant's about to put on its new spring growth, which typically is the end of February in this area, and then uh, go ahead and prune them at that time. And even then, I wouldn't take off more than about 30 to 40% of the foliage at any one time. Okay. And uh, back to the termites, is this something that I need to do on a periodic basis you know it's going to cost you that that package nematodes is going to cost you under 20 bucks um (laughs) that's a whole lot cheaper than a periodic contract with a uh with an extermination company i don't think it would hurt anything and you've got the benefit that you're taking care of fire ants and fleas and you know all those other things so yeah if you want to do it once a year i think it'd be a a very good idea since you have had them that first year, you might do it again in six months just to be sure you've gotten them all. And then I just make it one of those things, uh, just one of your New Year's resolutions. Run, get some nematodes and treats. You just head off problems in the future. Okay. Thank you very much. Good question. It. It's my pleasure. Goodbye. Okay. All right. Let's get right on back to these phone lines. It's going to be Deborah and then Judy and then you if you want to give me a call. Good morning, Deborah. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Two questions. One up from frivolous. Uh, when I lived in Panama, my husband would quite often stop at the enterprising entrepreneurs that would drop into the jungle and cut bunches of flowers uh-huh. and sell them from the back of their truck. He brought home this bouquet one time. They were... A dark, shiny leaf and a rather flimsy two inches across flower. The notable thing was the fragrance. Okay. 
that fragrance diffused through the house. It, it covered 2,000 square feet in about three hours' time. Okay. The closest I could get from anybody was that it was white ginger. That's quite possible. Why They actually call it white butterfly ginger. Extremely fragrant. Uh, makes a plant. Grows about four to five feet tall. Does extremely well here in San Antonio. Starts blooming mid to late summer. Blooms all the way through into fall. And um, I, I would wait until it warms up to plant it. But you want to grow some in your yard. You'll do very well with uh, white butterfly ginger. I would have been willing to build a greenhouse. (laughs) (laughs) If you do that, I can find you some other things. But uh, no need for that for the white butterfly ginger. I would mulch it in the winter, but uh, I don't ever remember a winter cold enough to really hurt it. It will freeze down most winters. But, you know, good organic care, fertilizer, and water. It regrows very quickly in the spring. Uh, other than maybe the occasional woolly bear caterpillar, which is uh, pretty easy to control, it has very few problems, and uh, it, it gets big. I mean, some people don't have room to grow a plant that gets four feet tall and three feet wide, but, uh, yeah, you get that nice spike of flowers on top of each one of the many shoots that come up. So, yeah, I say go for it. White butterfly ginger is all the things you say it is, uh, plus really easy to grow. Do you carry them? We do. Like I say, not this time of year, but in the spring, we've almost always got, uh, you know, three or three to five gallon cans back there. And like I say, midsummer, they even have flowers on them when you buy them. Mm. Fantastic. Beats a trip back to Panama. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, second question. I want to do, I'm, I'm trying to get grass out of my yard. Okay. What I would prefer to have, I'm in the country, mm-hmm. and I would prefer to have a wildflower meadow. Okay. I want to start slowly because I do have a lot of ground here. Uh-huh. But uh, what I'd really like is take my parking area and have blue bonnets and, well, almost like the mix that they use on the medians. Sure. Uh you know, wildflowers to come up after the blue bonnet. What do I need to do to get this started this year? Well, stop parking there for one thing. The biggest enemy of most plants is compaction. So uh, if you're, you know, intent on planting things in an area where you've been parking for a while, you're probably going to have to run over it with a disc harrow at the very minimum just to loosen that soil up where things uh, will grow. Parking going on out there. It's the part outside my fence between me and the road. Okay. Um, you know, basically, it's get in touch with Wild Seed Farms, get your seed. You're getting a little late, but uh, you, you know, there are a lot of things you can still plant, but uh, there's no reason to worry about the grasses, and you're going to be glad, glad the grasses are there through a lot of the year to hold your soil and prevent erosion and things like that. But uh, uh, wildflowers do not really compete with our warm season grasses. Now, cool season grasses are a different story. If you've got the Texas winter grass or, you know, rye or something like that coming up, get out there with your vinegar and orange oil and, you know, spray it to burn it down. But uh, uh, wildflowers tend to grow and bloom 
during the season when your warm season grasses are not in active growth. So uh, no reason to go to a lot of expense and trouble trying to get rid of them. You just mow it down low, rake it enough that your seed's going to make good contact with the soil underneath and start sowing the seed. And uh, you can have everything from uh, things like blue bonnets and Indian paintbrush that bloom early to things like uh, the hymenoxus and uh, a lot of the... Uh, Oh, the different cone flowers, the different uh, composites that will bloom well into the hot weather. Now, you're not going to have a lot. There are not many wildflowers other than something like Blackfoot Daisy and some of the melon podiums that uh, are going to be blooming all the way into the fall. But you should have an almost constant show of flowers from late February, at least into early summer. But And you don't really need to do a whole lot except just... Uh, you know, get things mowed down and raked out to the point your seed can make good contact with the soil underneath. Spread your seed and pray for rain. Uh, should I put a layer of compost over? No, no, absolutely not necessary. Um, they, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, compost serves in many ways as a natural pre-emergence herbicide. So, uh, if you wanted to spray them down with compost tea after they've sprouted and started to grow. That would be a very good idea, but uh, save the compost for your vegetable garden. Okay, okay. That'll, and that'll and your white ginger. <laughs> your, white, um, your white ginger will like the compost on the ground around the base of it. You're saying uh, April maybe for the white ginger in your store? Uh, probably mid-March uh, all through the summer. You'll be seeing me. I'll look forward to it, Deborah. You have a great Sunday, and I will move on and talk to Judy. Good morning, Judy. Hey, Bob. How are you? Uh, just a beautiful morning out there. Good. Um, I'm wondering, when is the best time to prune a firebush? Well, your firebush is going to freeze off to the ground. In fact, it probably already has. So there's no reason to wait. That's dead tissue. Um, all it's kind of like cutting your hair, cutting your fingernails. Uh, yeah. uh, it's the plant doesn't even know it's being pruned. Uh, so you cut it back anytime it's convenient for Judy. The plant, the plant is dead from the ground up. It's still very much alive below the soil. And I don't know how many years you've grown firebush, but that is one plant. It's the last thing to come back in the spring. So I always tell people that uh, it will come back and start growing two weeks after you've given it up on it for dead. So it's, you're okay. going to have to be patient next spring for it to come back. But there is absolutely no reason not to get out there and prune the dead top off of it today. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. I would put a little bit of, uh, if you want to really you know, help it out, uh, to get through the winter and into spring, put a couple inches of either mulch or compost, you know, over okay. the root system over of that plant, yeah. and that will help it come back stronger in the spring. But like I say, develop a lot of patience, and next spring when it's uh, March 15th and you still haven't seen the first little leaf on it, you remember Bob said it's going to be late coming out. So uh, it, it will come out two weeks after you give up on it. All right. Thanks, Bob. Hey, you're welcome, Judy. Have a great Sunday. Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, looks like we're going to talk to Liz and Ross and Matt, and Liz is up first. Good morning, Liz. Hi, sir. How are you doing? I'm great this morning. How are you? 
Good, good. Enjoying the beautiful sun. Oh, listen, I tell you, I was standing in the greenhouse dressing poinsettias. I was looking down at beautiful flowers and looking up through that greenhouse at that uh, at that gorgeous sun coming up. It just is a beautiful morning. I, I feel sorry for people that sleep in on Sunday because they sure do miss a nice part of the day. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. All righty. Uh, my question is, on the diesel and molasses, trying yes. to eliminate some brush, is this a still a good time to do that absolutely absolutely i'm probably not going to have time to work on mine after christmas but i've got uh, some uh, mesquite coming up down on my dam and uh yeah i find that it works pretty much 365 days a year okay wonderful all right that was my question sir you got your work cut out for you <laughs> get out and enjoy liz thanks for the call thank you you're Bye-bye. you're welcome all right ross is next good morning ross Morning, Bob. Hey, good morning. How are you, sir? Yeah, yeah. Well, weird, well, not a weird question, but um, a while back when we were at Fanix, when uh, you were broadcasting there, right? Uh, we bought a six pack of what we thought were bee bomb, and it looks like bee bomb. I planted it in ideal locations, growing like crazy, but it um, is vining, and it went through the freeze. It's still just as green as can be. <laughs> I don't think it's bee balm, but it's, uh, you know, the bee balm is uh, genus Monarda, and there are lots and lots of different Monardas out there. I don't really know of one that uh, fits that description, but that certainly doesn't mean, you know, that it's not out there. It's uh, And, of course, that's also the problem with common names. Um, it might be something totally different that somebody just stuck the name of bee balm on there, but the thing that... The wildflower folks and the things that I call bee balm is uh, Monarda, usually Monarda citrina, and um, it's not going to take a hard freeze, so I quite honestly don't know what you have. Call Mark or Mike over there, or when you come back to town, uh, take a, either a picture of it or a piece of it by and see what's itself that you're selling as, as bee balm. Uh, lemon balm, now I can see that coming through a light freeze, and... Uh, um, but of course that's a whole different plant whatsoever, but that's not to say that tags don't get confused and a little mixed up from some of the growers who don't really know what they're growing. Yeah. I mean, it looks, the leaves are identical to the other bee balm we grow. Uh-huh. That's, it, what, that's what really kind of threw me for a loop. It may just be a different Monarda. Um, get a, you know, get a good wildflower book. And by the way, there's an excellent new wildflower book you know, out on the market that's actually uh, written by one of the folks uh, that works down at San Antonio Botanical Garden. So get a good uh, get a good wildflower book and see if they, you know, list a Monarda that would fit the description of what you have. Okay. Because like I say, there are a lot of different forms of it. Some of them highly ornamental. Uh, some of them, you know, native wildflowers. And uh, far be it for me to be able to keep up with every single one of them. Yeah. It just this one has me confused. Well, let's see how it blooms. And, uh, you know, plant taxonomy is based not on how something grows or on its uh, its uh, structure of the plant. It's of uh, uh, Taxonomy is all based on what they call floral morph- morphology, uh, the structure of the flower. So till it blooms, it's going to be hard to put an absolute name to it. But, um, again, you know, it doesn't cost you a thing uh uh, it's uh, it's not even a long-distance call from Seguin anymore to uh, call Fanix. And talk to Mark or Mike over there. 
Uh, they know, um, uh, you know, they know pretty much everything goes through that nursery, and I'm sure they'd be happy to help. Okay, I'll give them a call. You let me know what you find out. Hey, right. right, appreciate it. <laughs> All right, Ross. Bye. Thank you, sir. Bye. Okay, let's talk to Matt. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Oh, just doing well. It's such a gorgeous day out there. I feel sorry for anybody that's not. Yeah, I just got off work and oh, I should be out. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I've got four quick rapid-fire question answers for you. Okay. Uh, your orange oil or vinegar, what's the recipe? Two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar. On the vinegar, the stronger the better. And then I just put a few drops of dish soap in there, sort of a spreader sticker. Okay. Can I use a sprinkling can instead of a sprayer? Absolutely. What you do not do, you don't dilute it down with water. So you can use a uh, you can use a sprinkling can. You can use a pump up sprayer. You can use a hand sprayer. You just can't use a hose in sprayer or something that mixes it with water as it puts it out. But uh, um, quite frankly, it's it is extremely efficient to put it out with a watering can, but it doesn't go as far. And you need to remember, all you're trying to do is wet the foliage. It does not do any. It doesn't work any better if you soak the ground. So get uh, you know a little uh, thing on the end of the of the nozzle on a watering can is called the rose. Get a rose that has lots of small openings so that you put out a, a fairly fine mist just so you can be conservative with it because, uh, you know, neither orange oil nor good strong vinegar is cheap, so you want to make it go as far as you can. Okay. Uh, what would be a typical lifespan for a pecan tree in this part of the country? Oh, well, you say in this part of the country and... Um, yeah, I would say two to 400 years. (laughs) Okay. I won't worry about that one. Okay. Now here's, here's the thing. And I'll use an example for my own ranch. I have a number of big pecan trees out in the middle of a field that, uh, I would guess are probably easy 150 years old. And back in 2011, which is the worst single year drought in our weather records, Those trees never dropped a leaf. They did not look like there was, they didn't even know there was a drought going on. On the other hand, I have pecan trees that were probably 30, 40 years old growing along a creek. And that creek sometimes dries up for a few weeks and then it'll have water in it again. In 2011, it dried up for almost two years. And I had big old pecan trees die from lack of water because a tree only grows as much root system, any plant, as much root system as it needs to support itself. Those trees out in the middle of the field, they probably had roots all the way to Bandera County. The ones down along the creek had a much more limited root system because they had no reason to grow a real widespread root system. They got all the water they thought from the creek or they needed from the creek and uh, in their own little you know, non-thinking way didn't grow that that big root system because something the tree said you don't really need it. So there are factors that will kill a pecan tree sooner. If I had a big pecan tree that was an integral part of the landscape, I'd spend the money to put some lightning rods in it because uh, I've lost trees to lightning strikes and I've had trees damaged by lightning strikes. So there are things that could end that tree's life sooner than that. But in uh, you know, in an ideal condition, I would expect them to live, uh, you know, a couple of centuries. The state champion pecan tree is up outside of Weatherford. Howard Garrett and I visited that together one day, and I think they figure that one may be close to 600 years old. Oh, yeah, I won't have to worry about that far. 
<laughs> well, uh, at least she'll be a very old man by that time. Really? Uh, a while back, you made mention that you kind of liked the Monterey oak as a fairly quick-growing tree. My experience, it's the fastest growing of the oak trees. Um, it is semi-evergreen. A real cold winter is going to drop its leaves. Most years, it's just going to behave like our traditional southern live oak. It's going to remain evergreen through most of the winter and then drop its leaves in early spring and put on new growth. But uh, combine the resistance of oak wilt, the relatively fast growth, pretty much absence of any kind of problems from insects or anything else, uh, I consider it to be an extremely good choice for this area. Now, I suspect the cold hardiness would limit it if you got much north of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but um, here in San Antonio and Hill Country, pretty much throughout this area, I think it's a very good tree. Okay. And last quick one, uh, grass during the winter season, high cut or low cut? High cut. Um, I mean, do you want to sleep under a sheet or do you want to sleep under a down comfort? (laughs) You know, you cut it down low and, you know, typically zoysias and Bermudas have underground runners. So basically you can do anything you want to. There are people out there that, you know, cut it low and paint it green. (laughs) As a matter of fact, I was driving up to Dallas the other day and and went by a golf course where they had not planted winter grass, but they painted the dead grass green (laughs) on the the greens out there. So uh, things with underground runners, if you want to, you know, if you want to cut them down low, you can. But St. Augustine especially, I would leave taller. I think the taller blades, even on Zoysia and Bermuda, I think they do a better job of catching and holding moisture in place. I think they, uh, I think that ground, you certainly keep the microbes more active. Um, and we have our microbes called psychrophilic microbes that are active even in practically frozen ground. But I think the, the things that we want living and doing well in the soil, whether it's microbial life or earthworms, keep that soil a little bit warmer, keep it a little bit more moist. And those critters are going to be happier. And by leaving your your um, grass a little longer, um, you're gonna you're going to achieve that. So uh, Bermuda is always you do anything you want. I would leave it longer. Saint Augustine, absolutely leave it longer. Okay, and I think you said yesterday that you kind of like that Bermuda tiff. That is just my personal feeling. It uh, it is a very wear resistant grass i mean that's why they use it on golf courses uh it does not require as much mowing if you want it as a turf grass now if you're going to create a putting green you're going to spend a thousand dollars for a good real type rwel real type mower and you're gonna have to mow it every day that's what it takes to make a putting green surface but as a as a tough durable drought tolerant foot traffic tolerant big dog foot tolerant grass as long as you've got good sun, I think uh, your TIF, TIF 419, TIF Green, any good Tifton type grasses, uh, I think they are one of the best grasses out there. Now, my old buddy Alton Grimm taught me a long time ago that there's no such thing as a perfect grass or a perfect plant. He said all plants have good characteristics and bad characteristics. So here are the bad characteristics of TIF Bermuda or any other Bermuda. They're the, la- they're the first grass to turn brown in the fall. They're the last grass to green up in the spring. 
they're going to have chiggers in them through the summer months. If you've got, you know, kids, grandkids, pets playing out there in them, you're going to have to put hopefully a deep free uh, insect repellent to keep them from getting chiggers, red bugs, or whatever else. Um, and so those are negatives. You look at something, oh, but they didn't also, it's very drought tolerant. If you have to stop watering it, it's going to turn brown and look ugly, but it's going to turn green again as soon as we get a good rain. You compare that to a lawn grass like St. Augustine. It has a much longer green season. It will never have chiggers in it. But it is not at all drought tolerant. It uh, you let it if it goes dormant, it's permanent. It's dead. So uh, it, and and that's another big misconception. I really get mad when even some of the municipalities around badmouth St. Augustine because they say it takes more water than other grasses. It does not take more water than other grasses to look nice. You're going to water your Bermuda just as much as you'd water your St. Augustine to have a nice green lawn. But if we have to stop watering, your St. Augustine's going to die. Your Bermuda is going to go dormant. So um, there's no perfect grass out there. And I always uh, I, I encourage people to plant as little grass as possible because it is the biggest water user in the landscape. And in most areas, I'd much rather see uh, a good drought-tolerant ground cover. I'd rather see, you know, beds of drought-resistant shrubs and flowers and things like that. But when it comes to turf, just choose carefully. Um, uh, and, and whatever, you know, what's right for you might not be right for the next guy. But overall, if I had to pick the toughest, most durable uh, foot-resistant grass, whether it's two-legged or four-legged, um, then it's going to be tip Bermuda. Okay. All right, sir. That will do her. Well, then you get out and have a good Sunday, and I appreciate the call this morning, Matt. Great questions. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. You too. Bye. All right. Let's get right back to the phone lines. Marcia, Rosa, and Cliff. Good morning, Marcia. Good morning. Can you hear me? I hear you just fine. Okay, great. Um, I was looking outside today, and I was looking at my Arctic frost tree, and it's loaded with oranges. Uh-huh. And I need I needed to know, do I need to pick them because of a freeze that might happen, or are they good? Unless you live a long way north of here, don't worry about a thing. If we have a freeze in the San Antonio area tonight, it will be a very light one, and it will hurt neither the tree nor the oranges. Perfect. Because um, I know if they stay on longer, they get sweeter. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Sunshine on top of green leaves makes sugar. And the more sugar you've got in that orange, actually, the more cold-resistant it is, as well as the sweeter in flavor. The only downside is is the more appealing it becomes to the birds and the squirrels. So keep that in mind, too. Okay, I will do. Um, okay, and last year, I did my first foray into trying to start my own seeds. Uh-huh. Um, I bought a fancy light and, you know, the setup. I started with the, uh, the, you know, the generic kind of little things that you pour water and they expand. Then I went to core. Then I went to core. And I didn't have any luck with either. I fried them all or I didn't keep them wet enough. What do I need to do to be successful this year? Well, it really, tell me, first of all, what kind of seeds you were trying to start. Uh, just your tomatoes, um, you know, almost any kind. I had some lemon boy. I had some uh, sweet 100, okay. a couple others. I had peppers. Okay. You know, you, to give you a real course on seed germination would almost have, almost have to take each different plant seed by seed. In general, okay. a good medium to start them in, and that can be just good potting soil, 
I mean, Ladybug used to make, and some companies still, or some nurseries still have in stock what they call the germinator mix. But any good loose potting soil is fine. If you want to make a perfect germinating soil, get a good potting soil to start with and run it through a little screen to take out all the bigger pieces of wood and whatever else. But um, if there was one thing that I would tell you was really important, and that is get a propagating mat, which is like a little rubber mat that has electric cables through it you just plug it in you can spend a lot of money or just a little bit of money and get something that gives those seeds bottom heat and that does more to help the germination of seed than anything i know plant lights those are nice but even the plant lights don't give you as much light as a young seedling really needs i'd be setting up my propagating area in the sunniest room the sunniest window the sunniest place i had Um, you need to look at individual seeds to see whether they need to be buried tomatoes and peppers both want to be covered with about a quarter of an inch of soil other seed may actually need light to germinate so can't give you an absolute answer on all the different seeds i think soaking your seed before you plant it i use the dilute solution of a garret juice uh liquid seaweed is also good um and in the case of some hard to germinate seeds like peppers most peppers can be quite difficult to germinate and the pros get a chemical called potassium nitrate or saltpeter uh you'll probably buy it in the nursery under the name of stump remover and about a 15 to 30 minute soak in a solution two tablespoons to a quart of water will increase your germination on peppers immensely so it's it's there's not one easy answer as to you know what to do right or wrong with starting seed but the two thing for sure get a propagating mat that will make a lot of difference and then feel free to call me and ask about individual seed varieties and we'll go from 